After the Virus, Season 2, Survivalists' Birthright, Chapter 1. The moment that Laurel left the journal on the docks at Alcatraz, I knew that this unsatisfying ending would have both listeners and readers wanting more. And so did I. Some of my listeners grew so close to characters in the story, especially Hope, that they emailed me, pleading for Hope to be found alive after the attack at Tisdale. Of course, I knew she was, but it was touching and flattering to think that I had been involved in helping create this emotional bond with a fictional character. As had Lola Parks, whose portrayal of Hope added to her appeal. So when they headed off to the oil tanker, I just had to know if they made it, if the ship sank. If it didn't, where did they go and what might have happened in their futures? So here to answer some of those questions are chapters one and two of the sequel, A Work in Progress, Survivalists' Birthright. Please tell us again, Mother, pleaded Rachel, the pretty six-year-old in the simple pastel dress and head covering, her seven-year-old brother in dark overalls and a flat-brimmed, flat-crowned hat was slightly more restrained. Please tell us about Uncle and Grandfather, he asked, almost formally. Their mother's loveliness was disguised by a long, shirtwaist dress and small bonnet, but it was clear from the cut of her bodice, her well-defined arms, and the graceful jaw and nose, that she was strong and beautiful. Okay, as soon as you finish washing the dinner dishes, she relented. The children rushed inside to complete their chores. Seated together on the lawn, she began the oft-repeated story. After the bad men came and hurt my family, a good man, your grandfather, found me in the cave where my mother had hid me. One of the first things to happen was that he fell and broke his nose. He taught me the names of all the plants and birds, showed me how to catch animals for food and how to hunt with a bow and arrow. We lived in caves and in the woods for almost a year. He taught me so much. Your father's uncle Travis, she continued, was a great big man with a fluffy gray beard and a laugh that made everyone around him happy. He organized a group of really nice people who all helped each other float down the wide river all the way to the ocean. What about the big ship and the long journey? The boy Jaden asked. The woman took a deep breath before starting. The four of us were stranded on the island in the deep bay when grandmother saw the oil ship heading for us. They were stopping to pick up others in small boats, so we jumped in our little sailboat and got up close to them. It was impossible to pull our boat right up to the ladders, so we had to leave almost all of our things, dive in the water, and swim to the ladder. The ladder was very, very long and it was scary climbing it, especially for Grandfather, because the metal hand he had then did not grip the ladder well. But we all made it onto the deck, where many people helped us climb in and welcomed us. All of our neighbors were there. We met them all on that day. The children clapped their hands on cue, knowing the story by heart. After the ship went under the Golden Bridge, we went straight out into the ocean, 
not stopping for four days, the mother dutifully recited. On the fourth day, the motors stopped, and we all waited for news of the big explosion. That night, after waiting many hours to hear, the captain spoke over the loudspeaker, saying, The news from all of the other boats is that there have been no explosions, but we will continue to our destination as planned. Even though we couldn't see them the next day, we passed by the Hawaiian Islands. We kept sailing for three more days and finally came here, to our island. We chose this island because if the bombs went off, the poison from the bombs couldn't reach us here. The woman paused, waiting for the children to chime in. And you and father got married and had us. Yes, she replied with a loving smile. And now we're going back to where father and I and grandmother and grandfather came from to make it a nice place again. Chapter 2 It had been ten years since Hope, Ethan, Will, and Laurel had climbed aboard the oil tanker Fuga, bound for the Phoenix Islands, completing a manifest of 13 crew members and 32 refugees, all survivalists, atop 21 million gallons of crude oil. This island group had disallowed virus refugees, pre-symptomatic, and survivalists, asymptomatic, which had kept the native population virus-free. The Fuga was turned away at the most populous island, Canton, population 24, and instead chose to occupy uninhabited Arona Atoll, a large lagoon ringed by a broken ribbon of land covered with coconut palms and native grasses. Here, the 45 souls based themselves in the abandoned village of Arariki, utilizing the few remaining buildings as a commissary, medical clinic, and a place of worship. The first decade on the atoll had been mostly good, with everyone preoccupied with building new lives, homes, and infrastructure. Due to the narrowness of the land, from about 700 feet to 2,000 feet wide, the settlement was somewhat linear in nature, with some homes accessible across narrow channels between the sea and the lagoon only at low tide. Most settlers set up households with those they had originally been traveling with. The crew erected a small compound where they all lived together. Will, Laurel, Ethan, and Hope lived in two adjoining structures. In all, the 45 inhabitants built and occupied 17 dwellings in addition to the three existing buildings. Many goods and fixtures were confiscated from the tanker. Essentially, anything that wouldn't be needed for future travel in the ship became hardware, tools, or furnishings for the village. And of course, oil. The ship's engines were fired up once each week, and aside from being stripped of furnishings, it was kept ship-shape. On shore, the crew's mechanical abilities were indispensable, and Will's familiarity with medicinal plants made him the best candidate for the clinic's pharmacy, even though he had to learn the qualities of all the new plants. Using one of the inflatable lifeboats from the tanker, the men regularly organized fishing trips offshore, as well as fishing and netting in the surf and spearfishing. Because of the highly varied religious views of the community, Hope volunteered to start a non-sectarian church service where everyone could worship as they wished and the opportunity to learn and understand other religious viewpoints was provided. Hope, for herself, chose to revisit her Mennonite upbringing, 
and observe the pacifist traditions of that church, in part to atone for the violence forced upon her in the years after the virus. She was raising Jared and Rachel according to Mennonite tradition. As a capable seamstress, Laurel's skills were always in demand for mending old clothing, and she supplied the commissary with repurposed apparel as well as cloth woven from palm fiber. After building their own homes, Ethan and Will spent most of their time assisting others with the construction of neighboring dwellings. Almost everyone participated in a large community garden, and the young men and children climbed trees to harvest coconuts, a dietary staple. Few residents were related by blood, as the randomness of immunity to the virus meant that the chances were very small of there being two unaffected members of the same family. But many were associated by school, or neighborhood, or employer, had found each other as they made their way to San Francisco Bay, and now became family by proxy. Some of these surrogate families chose to dwell together. Others, like Hope and Ethan, or Laurel and Will, had found life-or-death crisis to be a compelling catalyst for creating loving bonds. Two weddings had been performed on Arona, Ethan and Hope, and another young couple who met on the tanker, Levi and Chloe. Of those two marriages, three children would eventually be produced, Jared William and Rachel Keisha to Ethan and Hope, and Renata to Levi and Chloe. After about seven years of relative bliss, post-virus 7 or 7PV in the parlance of the survivalists, discontent began surfacing among certain residents. Mostly due to the all-male composition of the crew, the gender ratio of the refugees was significantly imbalanced at 31 men to 14 women. During the early years when everyone was focused on surviving and building, it had not seemed to be much of an issue. But by year 7, it was becoming clear that there were not enough single women for the many single men, especially the crewmen. It was difficult to pinpoint the problem at first. Some of the men had begun distilling and drinking lambanog, coconut wine, and in a few instances became publicly belligerent under its influence. Then, various types of competitions started taking place, normally harmless, but they took on a darker, more serious tone foot races, spear throwing, then boxing matches. After a match, where the once peaceful and pleasant crew would have congratulated each other on their efforts, they instead went away angry and bitter for the loss. By year eight, they were forming small factions and began taunting each other. Fights broke out, and it soon seemed that they were drunk much of the time. Under the influence of alcohol, they began showing off for the women in the village. Not only the single women, but the attached women as well. At the same time, they began harassing the male partners and male housemates of the women, challenging and belittling them. It now seemed clear that the growing frustration of being without mates was driving the de-evolution of once good neighbors. The same thing had happened to the fugitive crew of the Bounty on Pitcairn Island in 1790, when the 29 men started to fight over the 14 Tahitian women they had brought to the island they began a series of revenge and retribution killings that resulted in only one man left alive when they were discovered 24 years later. The villagers met to discuss the problem and possible solutions. Most of the crew chose not to attend. It was decided that the brewing of Lambanog would be forbidden and that physically violent competitions would be disallowed. 
The peaceful little community had never needed any form of policing. Suddenly, they needed someone strong and respected to act as an authority figure. At 60 years of age and remarkably fit, Will was chosen to fill the role. While the non-crew young men of the community were convinced to abide by the new rules, the crew was hostile to any new rules being posed upon them. When Will visited their compound to confront them, they heckled, then threatened him. Seeing that the numbers were against him if it came to a fight, Will calmed down the rhetoric as much as possible and retreated to the commissary, where Laurel, Ethan, and Hope were waiting for him. We should do this in a way that doesn't escalate tension or cause bloodshed, offered Hope. To hell with that, grumbled Will. These punks need to be taught respect. They're like spoiled kids who've never been disciplined. What about the captain? Can't he help? asked Laurel. He's been on the sauce since they started brewing that damned coconut firewater, replied Will. He's not about to stand up to them. Sorry, Hope, began Ethan. I appreciate your non-violent attitude, but these guys are getting out of hand. They're whistling at you and disrespecting Laurel. And what about our Rachel? We've got to nip this in the bud. I've got an idea, stated Will. They all seem to be afraid of Jesse, the one with the neck tattoos. If we win him over, or kick his ass, maybe the rest will fall in line. Let's try hard for win him over, sighed Hope. They decided that Will would go back and ask to meet with Jesse out in the open. Ethan would get into position to cover Will should things go bad. Hope and Laurel went to let the other neighbors know what was going on. Things went bad immediately. I hope that you've enjoyed this introduction to the second book and that you're happy to learn about Hope's evolution and her emergence as a conscientious thought leader. After all, even though Will began the story and Laurel contributed to it, it's really a story about hope and the eternal struggle of good over evil. The podcast will continue to be available for new and returning listeners in the coming months, so keep an eye and ear out for Season 2 to begin in earnest in a few months. For interesting insights and updates on the story and exclusive teasers regarding the sequel, visit our Facebook page, After the Virus, A Survivorless Journal. As a souvenir of your adventure with me, consider purchasing the book on Amazon. And until we speak again, be well and be kind to Mother Earth. <laughs>